And God just is... These countries we'll discuss today, Assyria and Babylon, were just tools in your hands. Um, I pray that Japan would in some way have an awakening to the grace available in you and to their need for you. You are truly the one sovereign of Japan. And I am grateful for men and women who have committed themselves, committed their families to ministering in a uh, difficult and in many ways fruitless environment. God, I ask that you'll be with our team there, that they'll be able to offer encouragement and instruction where necessary. But probably more than that, that they'll come back with a, a deep heart and burden for your people in Japan. For those who currently identify as your people and those who would never want anything to do with you, I pray that your spirit would speak to them both. Encourage one and convict the other. Be with them while they're there this week and do amazing things. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, Isaiah 36 through 39. We are not obviously going to. This is if I if I when I lie to you and say we're not going to read all of the poetry. I really can't lie to you and say we're not going to read all this because we have, like, there's just so much here. So a lot of it is going to be me outlining what's going on in these chapters, and um, and it's important again to realize that these three these four chapters are bridging the gap between Isaiah. We'll call it here. We'll go critical scholar on you. First Isaiah and second Isaiah. They're bridging the gap between those. They'll, they'll call um, proto-Isaiah or the original Isaiah, chapters 1 through 35, and many scholars. This is, this is still in the conservative side of scholarship, by the way. We'll call it deutero-Isaiah, the second side of Isaiah. Because scholars will argue over whether or not they could have possibly been written by the same guy. For our purposes today, largely an irrelevant question. Um, but whatever the, the question rises up because there's a distinct shift in style and emphasis and content and even purpose from chapters 1 through 35 and then chapters 40 through 66, which tells us that this narrative interlude, this, this little bit of historical um, telling in, that's happening in chapters 36 to 39 is incredibly important because multiple authors or not, one thing is for certain, whoever arranged Isaiah places things in a spot for a certain reason. Just like whoever arranged the book of Matthew places today's text that Drew Moss is going to be preaching after the one that he did and before the other one that he did. There's an, um, you could call it a redactor. I like to call it more of a compiler. Someone who takes these things and arranges them into a document. So Isaiah didn't write down these prophecies. He spoke them. Someone's recording them. And then someone is acting as a master editor who is arranging these things in a certain way. So therefore, it can be no mistake or happy coincidence that the, chap the book seems to be divided in two with this little narrative interlude in between. So, understanding this section will help us understand the sections of Isaiah you'll probably all be the most familiar with in terms of New Testament quotations and allusions, chapters 40 through 66, which describe um, what God is going to do in the future. So... Just to recap, chapters 1 through 35 are all about Isaiah's calling to Israel, or really to Judah, to his calling as a prophet. That's the first six chapters. Well, chapters 1 through 5, a general synopsis of the book. Chapter 6, you have his call. And then from chapter middle of 6 on to 35, you have Israel and Judah's sin being described in terms of, probably if I could put a blanket over it, you, your insistence on trusting other people and not God. That's really the message. That's the message of Isaiah. Who will you trust? That's the message. And chapters 1 through 35 says, you guys have done a bang-up job of trusting everyone but the absolute sovereign of the universe, and therefore you're going to be judged. And Israel feels the weight of the punishment. We'll see here, it kind of steps on the scene in chapter 36. Israel has already been more or less completely conquered and obliterated by Assyria. 
So that, and then all of a sudden we get to 40, and you see this picture of hope and redemption. How do we get from conquered um, rebels who have completely failed their covenantal obligations to God to now I'm going to restore you? What's the bridge there? And that's what we have here. So, again, chapter 36 opens up. Assyria has already... um, laid waste to the northern ten tribes. They have conquered the capital city of Samaria. And I think that we actually have a hard time imagining how small the biblical lands are. Um, The entire nation of Israel, by the way, could fit between Stillwater and Tulsa. Like it's not, like it's no wider than that. North to south, it's a little longer. But it would never, I mean, it wouldn't go out of Oklahoma. The entire country sits, between, sits on the Cimarron Turnpike from the border of Kansas to maybe McAllister if you're lucky. Like it doesn't go that far. It's small. Now think about this when you have a bloodthirsty army who is conquering everyone around you. By the time they show up in Jerusalem or by the time we kind of look at this scene where Hezekiah is about to panic, the entire border of the conquered land that Assyria now owns as an, as an occupying force is eight miles north of your city. So if Perkins is the capital city of some empire, the army with all the power in the world to just wipe you off the map is sitting in Stillwater waiting. The stakes are a lot higher than we feel when we read this book. They're eight miles away. Jerusalem's at the very northern bit of the, of the, the nation of Judah. Um, and the king has a weakened army, and his coffers are drying up because, after all, all of his allies are being conquered around him. If anything, they're starting to, to put on a very casual siege on the country by choking out all their trade partners. And now they're sitting eight miles to the north, and Hezekiah sends in an ambassador, sends in a military officer, and basically says, have you heard what's going on? You should consider surrendering, because our guys are just taking a nap, and then we're coming down here. That's the, that's the, the ultimatum that he gives them. So let's, let's read a little bit of this, um, this military officer, the Rabshakeh. It's just, a, it's just a title for a military officer. Let's read a little bit of his, his interaction with Hezekiah's spokesperson. And what you're going to see is that um, it's probably one of the most masterful um, speeches you can find in the scriptures when it comes to using facts to blur reality. <laughs> it's, it's an incredible display of manipulation. So um, let's just let's start reading at the beginning of 36, and I want to read a little bit of his speech, and then we'll jump around after that. So it says in 36.1, and again, the parallel to this starts in First King, or Second Kings 18. So if you want to read side by side, it's worth doing. Verse 1, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Now one thing about, or a couple of things about King Sennacherib, he is, Assyria was a really volatile nation for a while. They got big and powerful, and then there was power struggle at the top, and no one could really lay claim to the throne. And finally, this guy named Sennacherib like, wrestles it down, defeats their enemies to the north, which would be like modern-day Armenia, and really shuts down the southern border and kind of quells the disruption that would be the nation of Babylon. So this is finally a guy that can control this large empire. And now he starts marching through what we know as the promised land, or what they knew as the most important trade route in the world um, through Judah. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. So Judah is a small nation consisting of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. The capital city is obviously Jerusalem and very, very important. But to even call it a nation is a bit of a misnomer. It's more like a collection of city-states. You can kind of think of a very, very, very informal version of what the Greeks used, where you have these, all these people that are more or less paying tribute into a powerful city-state, but they're all, they kind of self-regulate. And he says, I've just been picking them off one by one. All your little fortified cities with walls that you didn't think we could get over, we just tore them down. And then we walked right in. 
So he's taking care of all these little cities. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, which if you look in your footnotes is just a title of a high-ranking Assyrian military officer, sent him from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. So he's busy during, he's seizing a town, and now he sends in an officer to go to the capital city and say, oh, let's, let's deal before I get there. He sent to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So you have high-ranking delegation, people that can speak on behalf of the king's interests. And the military officer said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, so you're speaking to a, to a, Hezekiah is actually a pretty good king for the most part. You're speaking to a faithful Yahweh worshiper about the great king. Blasphemy number one. He says this, On what do you rest this trust of yours? You can underline that question and say theme verse for the book of Isaiah. On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Now, that might seem weird. Judah, because of poor planning, was at one point paying tribute to the nation of Assyria. Now, Hezekiah is a good king because he shows up and he's the reforming king. He says, we will not be in bed with these idolatrous nations. We will not be paying because we're scared that they can over that their gods are in some way more powerful than ours. And so he shows up and in his first year tears down all shrines, tears down places of worship of pagan gods, and the most critical piece, stops paying money to Assyria, which is why they're beating down the door right now. So this is how it works as a vassal state in the ancient world. You can operate as you wish so long as your money continues to flow to that the one who's really in power. The... Uh, the actual relationship is, so if we're a vassal state, that would be Judah. They are, they can function as a relatively sovereign nation or sovereign tribe or area if, and only if, they continue to pay tribute to the suzerain or Assyria. Which is really fascinating because this is the one who is very, very powerful and says, in exchange for our protection, you will pay taxes. We will take care of you. you your, your military men will belong to us. You will function as a, an arm of our empire and receive all the perks that come along with that so long as you continue to pay through the nose for it. The second the money dries up, protection's done, we're coming to crush you. We're going to take everything we want anyway. So this is, you do what we want, you, you are loyal to me, and I will give you privilege. When you rebel, the, lo the, the loss of loyalty will be dealt with. Now here's the interesting way um, to look at this. In Genesis 15, God cuts a covenant with Abraham and functions as the suzerain. And Abraham is the vassal. God says, you will follow me, and I'm going to give you three things. I'm going to give you a great name, a great nation, and a place. You will have more people than you can count. Your name will be highly revered, and you'll have a promised land. Now, just like Israel, or Judah in, our, in this case, rebels against Assyria, Assyria starts to take away what privilege was given. You're going to see as Judah rebels against Yahweh, he, as the suzerain, the one who can, when the covenant is voided or nullified, the one who will then punish and take away the privilege, he will take away the land and send in Babylon to do so. So it's interesting that this chapter opens up with the king failing to uphold his end of the bargain and paying the punishment for it, paying the price. And you're going to see that chapter 39 is going to end with 
the king, Yahweh, looking at his subjects or his vassals, the nation of Israel and Judah or the Hebrews, you failed to hold up your end of the deal. Therefore, I'm withdrawing the privileges. And it ends with, and you're going into exile. So this is, I don't know if all of my arrows really make sense, but this is the relationship that we're now seeing deteriorate. And that's why Sennacherib is closing in and Stillwater is about to invade Perkins. That's the picture here. So. Hmm? I said we might want to invade Perkins. No. No, 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 no. Okay. So, where was I? Okay, verse 5. Do you think that mere words are strategy? This is still the military official chastising Hezekiah's envoys and his ambassadors. Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? The suzerain-vassal relationship has been broken. Behold, you are trusting in Egypt. Something that Isaiah said, don't do that. You are trusting in Egypt. That broken reed of a staff, which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust in him. But if you say to me, we trust in Yahweh our God. Now watch, as facts are spun and uh, minds are manipulated. If you say to me, again, this is an Assyrian general saying, we trust in Yahweh our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed? Watch them sow seeds of mistrust. Hezekiah, by the way, did not remove Yahweh's high places. He removed high places, but not Yahweh's. Watch them spin the facts. Saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar. Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. This is, this is military mockery at its finest. I will give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. This is us going to war against another nation and saying, we'll give you F-16s and see if you can use them. Just try. We will load you up with all the, all the ammunition you could want, and then we'll fight, and we'll see what happens. I don't think you even have enough guys to pull the trigger. That's kind of what he's saying. I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots or for horsemen? Moreover, it is, without Yahweh, it is, with, is it without Yahweh that I have come up against this land to destroy it? Taking on the idea that we've been so successful, if your God is real, he must be the one behind this. Which is a little bit of a, you don't know what you're saying and you're kind of right. <laughs> Situation. Yahweh said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. I don't know if he said that to him, but that's how God's using him. Assyria has no you know, authority to operate outside of God's sovereign prerogative. Then Hezekiah's ambassadors said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. Your military propaganda is so strong, we do not want our troops to hear what you're saying. So speak to us in this neutral third language, Aramaic. We know, what, we know how to speak that language. We do not want, <laughs> I love what he does. But the Rabshakeh said, has, and now he's yelling. You know, he's, he's talking to the troops now. Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Military bravado is coming to a boil. Verse 13, Then the Rapshakah stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Again, this is the reforming king that has done a lot to set the nation back on track as one that faithfully worships God and upholds their end of the covenant. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. What a, what a damning line. Again, this entire book is 66 chapters of who will you trust. And you have this military man saying, don't let your foolish king convince you that trusting in Yahweh is worth it. 
Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern. Defection will be a wise choice, he says. Till I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, Yahweh will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? A terrifying question, considering that they must know that all of their countrymen have been killed at this point. Those who follow Yahweh, the, the outer cities, the fortified cities of Judah, of Judah have been captured. And so his question is appropriate and startling. And to be honest, the, the whole speech is in many ways convincing. You have to wonder how many soldiers started to unstrap their swords and convince and think about walking to the other side. The superpower is just laying waste to everyone they see. If our God is real, why do they seem to be so successful? I mean, he just said that God told him to come down here. Yahweh told him to come down here. I'd be thinking about it. They are um, typically, and again, there's no such thing as scholarly, scholarly consensus on anything but one plus one equals two, but they are typically credited with inventing crucifixion. Um, at the very least, they would impale you um, and do much what the Romans did and just line the highways with dead bodies on pikes as an act of terrorism, saying, whoever can do this must not be challenged. It was, fe was fear-mongering at its best, and they would brutally take out anyone who would rebel against. They'd be much more kind against just an, an opposing nation, but a rebellious vassal would meet the most severe injustices that... Babylon and Persia were kind in comparison to Syria. Mm -hmm. I just have a quick question. In 10, it's the, the man that's there, the spokesperson, says Lord. Do you know the Hebrew word for Lord in this text that he's using? In 10? Yeah, because there's many, there's many names. Yeah, well, whenever, when it's... Well, if it's in all caps, they're rendering, um, the, the Bible Translation Committee would be rendering uh, Yahweh, which you could, the English translation would be this, or the German mistranslation would be this, Anthony. <laughs> Thank you, King James people. Um, but where it is all caps in the Bible, they're translating that word, which is Yahweh. Um, where it is lowercase Lord or just God, they're translating El a lot of times or Elohim to use the real majestic form of it. And there's other versions of God. But this is specifically his name. Okay. So that's what, which is fascinating. You're right that someone who doesn't necessarily follow him would invoke the name. A little terrifying. So, yes. Um, so they they have. I I believe that the the speech is being quite effective. But watch how they react. <clears throat> um, well, verse twenty. Who he's still in the middle of his of his uh, fear mongering. Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that Yahweh should deliver? Jerusalem out of my hand. He's just saying, look at the evidence, bud. It's not going to go well for you. And it buds, he's talking to everyone. Uh, he says, like, 
what, what's so special about you that you'll withstand our prowess? And others haven't. Others, by the way, who claim to follow the same God you do. Give up. Is the, but look at the spines in these people. But they were silent and answered him not a word. And it's not a, a, I don't think it's a silence of fear. I think it's a silence of resolve. The king's command was do not answer him. And this is, there's something probably to see here about their understanding of the king as the Lord's anointed. I have to assume that we have a reforming king, a king that's going to stand up to a nation like Assyria and rebel against him. Um, this gives me hope that not all of the faithfulness in Israel has gone by the wayside. You have a military that is trusting in God's anointed and God's work through his anointed. Um, so the... the uh, Spokespeople returned to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him everything that they heard. Now, um, like I wanted to read that. We're not necessarily going to read all the rest. But it's important to see how Hezekiah responds. So he's desperate for help. So now we can even just, in some, to some degree, follow the notes on your outline. Um, Hezekiah is absolutely desperate for help at the beginning of 37 and sins for the prophet Isaiah. Um, Isaiah shows up, and here's what he says. In verse 6, Isaiah says to the servants of King Hezekiah, Say to your master, Thus says Yahweh, Do not be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and will make him fall by the sword of his own land. Isaiah says that this is not going to be a problem. You've done the right thing by trusting in me. Again, the great reforming king. Um, Great to some degree, Josiah is coming soon. He's another reformer. But Hezekiah is one who thumbs his nose at the Assyrian army, and God says, I know I'm going to handle this, and miraculously so. So uh, what I love is that um, I love that this is already spoken to Hezekiah, and then if you jump down to 14, he still prays for God to, to hold fast to his promise. Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messenger. So a response, from the, uh, a response from the Assyrian military that they are just going to level the place, saying, don't trust in God. In verse 14, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts. Man, that is so many uses of God's name in there. God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, this is going to be for someone who has um, gone back on their allegiance to someone more powerful than them. This prayer is an incredible swearing of allegiance to someone even more powerful than that. This prayer is pretty impressive. You alone, you of all the kingdoms, you have made heaven and earth, appealing to his um, creative abilities, appealing to his, really, his ownership of all things as the creator. Verse 17. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear. Open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. Hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. This is, this is where his theology bubbles up. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. And I'm sure his mind is just flashing back to all the shrines he tore down when he first took the throne. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Yahweh our God, save us from his hand, 
that all the kingdoms of earth, and here's his reason why, don't save us so that we can be saved. Save us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Pretty impressive prayer. Verse 21. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent to Hezekiah saying, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning them. Now, you can go in and read that in a second. But what I want to draw your attention to is it says, Because you have prayed to me concerning I think it's fascinating, and, and I don't want to dig too deep into this, into what causes God to do anything. But God says in the beginning of 37, Assyria will not prevail over you. Assyria says, oh yes, we will. Then Hezekiah prays, and the justification, God's reason for doing this, because you asked. I find that fascinating and it is a thread I do not want to pull on too hard but I find it fascinating this is what I'm going to do no you won't please do it okay because you prayed that's kind of how the narrative unfolds and it freaks me out because I can't pin down what caused God to do anything but it does seem to paint a much larger picture of the efficacy or the power of prayer than I would like to normally kind of ascribe out of my own prayer life. It just, I'm, I have always been the guy that is quasi-reformed enough to be obsessed with the sovereignty of God such that I can redline too hard in one direction and say, and therefore, I really don't need to ask him to do anything because he's got it. And he says, I've got it. No, you don't. Please do it. Okay, I will because you asked. There's something here, and again, I don't know that we can peel too many layers behind it, but there's something there that's pretty powerful about prayer. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken. Um, now, there is something fascinating about, if we think that Assyria is brash in their military bravado, look at how Isaiah speaks on God's behalf. Um, jump down to 23. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. This section will sound a lot like the end of the book of Job, where Job is just nearly 40 chapters of man questioning God. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Well, let me tell you why you're doing this. Let me tell you why you have sin in your life. You need to deal with that. That's why God's afflicting you. And it's just chapter after chapter of man trying to figure it out. And then finally at the end, God just says, shut your mouth. Who do you think you are to question me like this? But he, at the end of Job, God basically says, you want to do this? Put your cup on and we'll do this. Where were you when I laid the foundation? It's just, you're nothing. Don't talk to me like that. Don't point the finger in my chest like that. Who are you? And Isaiah, I love his speech. He, he looks back at the Assyrian military. Who are you? Against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord and you have said, with my many chariot. I can just, I would love to hear, I'd love to learn Hebrew and then hear Isaiah say this with loaded sarcasm. <laughs> You have said with my many chariots, I have gone up the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon. Remember, Hezekiah just got done praying to the one who he said, have made heaven and earth. And now Isaiah is mocking those who have ridden their chariots up and down mountains. Really? Okay. I've gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut down the tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses. Listen to all superlatives. To come to its remotest height and its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. <laughs> and then he says, Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I plan from days of old what now I must bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins. All the bragging you're doing about all the people you've conquered. I decided that forever ago, God says. 
jump down to verse 28. I know you're sitting down and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Assyria is the powerful ruler upset with Judah for not recognizing their authority. And Isaiah says, let me tell you whose authority you haven't recognized. And therefore, I'm going to thwart your efforts, and you're going back home. Now, he continues to talk about that, but let's jump to verse 36 and see how this actually plays out. And the angel of Yahweh went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Now, don't forget the prophecy... Where was it? 37 verse 7. Isaiah told Hezekiah, Before Hezekiah prays for deliverance, Behold, I will put a spirit in him, that is Sennacherib, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Then Sennacherib, so this is verse 37 of the same chapter, Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrak, his god, his sons, don't care about their names, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Esser Haddon, his son, reigned in his place. Thus we see the fall of Sennacherib. We see this incredible story of Hezekiah dealing with the Assyrian army coming in, God delivering him. Now, that ends on a high note. But this is, again, that's only two of our four chapters. Um, the chapters 38 and 39 are strange because chronologically they happen beforehand. So the editor of Isaiah is doing something to prove a point. Again, you don't just mangle with, the, this is the Apostle John. He does this with the gospel narrative. He doesn't really care about chronology so much as theme. He won't lie about chronology. He just says, you can't really read my book from start to finish and think it's linear. I'm following themes. And so the timeline in the Gospel of John and even in his Gospel and definitely in, Res in uh, the Revelation are all circular at best, but really kind of just hit or miss. There's no timeline across it. Isaiah does the same thing here for some reason. And when you mess with the chronology of a story, you've got to find out why. So these two chapters, Hezekiah being sick and his recovery, and then the prophecy concerning Babylon, actually take place before the little dust-up with Assyria. So let's see what's going on, and then we'll find out why he rearranged the order in a second. Um, okay, chapter 38. In those days, so in those days, a very vague phrase was just saying, once upon a time, I mean, he's not telling you when. He's not saying right after 37. He's just saying, once upon a time, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. The bedside manner of the prophets was not always so good. It just says, you better finish your will. It's going to go south real quick. And then whenever you find out what he was actually sick from, it's really funny. Like, he had boils. That's what he was going to die from. So there's very, very fascinating. Anyway, then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to, to Yahweh and said, Please, O Yahweh, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Now this isn't Hezekiah inflating his own um, history. This is, this is something that Second Kings would actually agree with for the most part. He was, um, by and large, a faithful, good king that followed after the, the promises and the, the instructions of God. So he prays. This is, again, this is the second time Hezekiah has asked for God's reprieve from disaster. Chronologically, it's actually the first. But verse 4. Then the word of Yahweh came to Isaiah. 
Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says Yahweh, the God of David your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add fifteen years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend the city. There's, clue, there's your clue right there that this takes place before the Assyrian um, encounter in chapters 36 and 38. He says, I will deliver you from Assyria. And 37 ends with he's already delivered him from Assyria. Sennacherib is dead. So we know that this moves the narrative beforehand. Uh, just as an aside, I always wonder like if, if uh, Hezekiah... When God told him, I'll give you 15 more years, if he, like, marked, you know, 2031 on his calendar, and said, apparently that day is going to go bad for me. 15 years. I was wondering if it's 15 years to the day or what. But he knew when he was going to die. So, um, then he talks about the sign, and then he deals with the sickness. And I'm not making light of all of this. I just wanted to get to the stuff that's really going to help us understand this. Um, Hezekiah wrote this, I guess you could call it a psalm. It seems like a psalm to me. Um, this song as he's recovering from his sickness. Um, I like how it ends, verse 20. Yahweh will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of Yahweh. This confidence that he's going to do what he said he's going to do. Now, Here's what, I, here's what Hezekiah was going to die from. Verse 21. Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. <laughs> so, basically he needed to make a little poultice, rub it on his rash, and he will now live. Now I'm sure that it was as terrible as could be, but that was what God was going to kill Hezekiah with. But he, in all of his mercy, granted him 15 more years. Um, so that brings us to the end of 38. So let's just, let's just recount what's taken place. Hezekiah's life was threatened. He begged God to grant mercy. God said, I will, but only 15 years. Temporary mercy is a very important, um, is a very important theme here. I will give you temporary mercy. You will not succumb to the Assyrian army. Now, that mercy will eventually come to a close, which we see in chapter 39. So, at that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, so now we've changed to a different nation. Assyria is to the north. Um, Babylon would be modern day Iraq type area. Babylon is uh, where the Tigris and the Euphrates split. And Babylon is, I think, on the northern shore of the Euphrates. You've got maps in the back of your Bible. You can look. But um, we've now transitioned to another kingdom, a southern kingdom, a newer kingdom. Assyria is older. Babylon rises to real power later in the scene. Assyria conquers the um, north around 722. Babylon's going to do their damage in 587 and 6. So we're talking, what's that, 150-ish years? Um, so Babylon's a, a later empire. The king of Babylon sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that he had been sick and recovered. Now, it's also important to remember that Hezekiah, good king though he was, was still failing to... Um, Trust fully in God because he had a tendency to make alliances with other nations that he probably shouldn't have. Well, we know he shouldn't have because it goes badly for him. So look at how this, this new relationship with Babylon forms. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly. And he showed them his treasure house. Idiot. <laughs> the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory. All that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them, that naive fool, um, foolish man. I don't want to call him a fool. That's wrong. Um, then, verse 3, Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They've come to me from a far country, from Babylon. Haven't you heard? Sounds great. 
He said, what have they seen in your house? And Hezekiah answered, they have seen everything. There's nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of Yahweh of hosts. Again, the military name. Yahweh, commander of the heavenly armies. Yahweh of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. (laughs) For he thought there will be peace and security in my days. And he was technically right. In his days, there was peace and security. Although when he dies, he only has four of his 15 remaining sons. Um, so it, hasn't, it isn't as though everything has gone just perfectly well for Hezekiah. But the important thing to see is that judgment does come. And it's not that he showed off the storehouses that he deserved punishment at all. It's that he, the, the, the nation as a whole had been unfaithful to covenant. And they had broken the arrangement. They'd broken the covenant. The refrain, if you'll read through Deuteronomy, and look for the reason why the laws are given, it is, so that you will live long in the land. It is the suzerain, it is the powerful agent, God, explaining the terms of the agreement. You need to do this, 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 and this. Why? So that you will live long in the land. Saying, if you obey me, if you're loyal to me, you'll get the perks of being my people. That is the land. That is the name of Abraham. That is a huge population. And now we see that in the case of Babylon, a lot of those perks are going to be stripped away. And we're going to see exile start to take place. Right. One of the things that you see is Hezekiah following in the footsteps of his father. His father, Ahaz, had entered into the agreement with, with Syria. Mm-hmm. And here he is following in his father's footsteps, running down to Egypt yeah. to make a treaty. Um, and then maybe acting like his father with Babylon, I don't know. But it's just fascinating that he does, basically, he followed in the footsteps of his father. Which is, which is amazing because, yes, his, the, the things from which, like the things that the nation had to reform were as a result of his father's policies. A relationship his father had made with another country. And Hezekiah knew well enough to undo such things when he takes the throne. And then before long, he, uh, he starts to fall into the same trap. Just same game, different players. Now, um, why this bridge matters so much? You see, well, there's a number of things that that this story is telling us. One is that um, God's mercy can be temporary. It can be a a time or a period of time where you were, like continued repentance is expected, and then there'll still be judgment when you fail to do so. So the nation, of, the nation of Judah, God saves them from Assyria, but soon enough Babylon will come. Hezekiah, God saves him from his infected boil and then kills him anyway. You only get, I'll, I'll extend your life, but 15 years is all you get. There is something there. And there's also, especially in the prayers of Hezekiah, there's something incredible about a king that prays on behalf of the nation. Someone who intercedes on the behalf of the people. And Hezekiah was a, a poor version of David, but he was a version of David. And, uh, you know, if you want to see the perfect version of David... The perfect version of Hezekiah. Go to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7 talks about someone who intercedes. 7.25 says this. Go 
Consequently, he, Jesus... Well, actually, I'm going back to 22. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Talking about his eternal priesthood. Verse 23, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. The perfect version of what Hezekiah was doing for the nation way back when. Okay. Um, Along the same lines though said a bit differently is Romans 8 34 <clears throat> who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died after all more than that he was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us a picture that Hezekiah paints in his finite human abilities that we have perfected in Jesus. Um, another great question that's answered in these chapters is the reason why God saves. If you look at chapter 37, verse 20, remember Hezekiah prays, Lord our God, save us from His hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You alone are the Lord. Don't save us to save us. Save us so that You will be famous. And then look at what he says in verse 35. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake, God says, and for the sake of my servant David. It's an interesting question to ask. Is why do you experience salvation? And I would, I would say the biblical answer is not, first and foremost, so that you can live in heaven at some point. Salvation is much bigger than that, and that is a whole other lesson which we don't have time to do. But we will do it at some point. Another big um, theme we have in here is the theme of exile and return. So... If we have exile from Eden, we now have exile. You can see the Bible kind of folds in on itself. We now have exile from Canaan. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. We have, we, we covered this a bit in Zechariah. You can see it in some intertestamental literature. You can even see it. Um, in um, some of the latter prophets, we have a return to the promised land, Canaan. And then I believe we have a return to Eden in Revelation 21 and 22. You have a lot of garden scenes there, and it seems like a recreation of Eden. So you have exile, exile, return, return. And um, obviously our passage deals specifically with this. But um, this whole section of Isaiah 40 through 66 is going to deal with this, the return to Eden. It's going to be a lot of fun.